would you feel if somehow, some way, we were able to get all of your thoughts from the past 24 hours in an audio format and put them on a CD and then pass one of those out to everybody in the room? How many of you would be like super excited, like sweet? How many of you would be like, oh man? Because <laughs> all of a sudden, what's going on? We're, we're getting past all the appearances and the masks that we sometimes wear. and We're getting into who we really are. And sometimes that's, that's scary territory, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> I remember one time at Christmas, Christmas about 15 years ago, I was sitting with my family in Ohio, and I got a present from an extended relative that was there. You know that whole thought process that's going on, like, man, I want to make sure I show enough gratitude when I get this gift. And so I told him thank you, however I told it to him. And then I was worried about it. I didn't show enough gratitude. Like, I don't know if you guys ever play these mind games with yourself. Maybe it's just me. So I go up to the bathroom, and I'm washing my hands in the bathroom, and I'm talking through what I said to this extended relative. I'm saying it out loud again to see how it came out. Then I hear my brother from the shower of all places, he's hiding in there. He says, who are you talking to? <laughs> My first thought is, what are you doing in the shower? <laughs> and you guys I have to ask him that when he comes back. He's not here. That's why I can pick on him. But second, I'm like, oh, man, I'm so embarrassed. Here I am talking to myself about what I just said to my extended relative, like worrying about what he thought. What, what, and somebody heard my inner thoughts. That was sort of embarrassing. I, I assume I'm not the only one that talks to myself, though. How many of you guys? Okay, thank you. I'm not super alone. He heard that inward dialogue, but I thought about, you know, as I said, Christmas. Man, what other time of year do we think about giving so much? Whether it's those three guys uh, coming to see the baby Jesus, although it was actually two years later. Most scholars believe we associate them with Christmas to give him their gifts. God's gift himself of Jesus, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Uh, what, what do we do around the Christmas tree with our families? We give, right? And I wondered, you know, my brother heard my thoughts about getting uh, that night. I wonder what would happen if we could amplify our thoughts about giving around the holiday season, you know, the people we give to, if we could amplify the real thoughts we have about those people, you know, would it, would it be that uh, we just sort of give to them because they give to us and we just feel sort of obligated, that's why we do it? Or, or would it be like, man, I really want to show everybody in this room how much I spent on this gift. I'd like them to see what I got for dad. Just so they're all like, wow, they must be doing good. Or I, I want to be dad's favorite kid or mom's favorite kid. So I'm, or my boss's favorite employee. What, what are the real motives behind why we give? And if those could be amplified, how would that come out? Or is it really that our motive is, I really want to bless this person. I love this person. I care about them. And I hope they truly enjoy the gift I've given them. I got to thinking about that, and then I thought, yeah, if, we, if that was true about Christmas, what would happen if we were to do that with, with church and our, our giving to God? Why, why do we give to God? And it's funny, God always does this. I was working on this message all week, but just last night, Jaden says, why do we give to God? And I was listening, and uh, he says, why do we give to God? It's not like God has to buy anything in heaven. <laughs> 
And I'm like, you know what? That's a really good question. There are probably adults that wrestle with that question. Why, why give to God? He doesn't need anything. If we have a right theology, he owns everything. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Why do we give to God? And I, I paused for a second. I said, that's a really good question, Jaden. Here's what it means when we give to God. The, the church is God's body, Jesus' body here on earth. And when we give to his body here on earth, it's, it's to use that money for the mission he's left us here for. Uh, to advance the gospel into our local community and around the world, because that's what he wants. And I gave I gave that to him in in six year old terms. But I thought, how many of us, if if we could really get into why do we give to God at church? What would our motives be? And would we go through some of the same possibilities as we did with our Christmas gifts that we give to people? Are there some of us in here that maybe sort of give just out of guilt, sort of half heartedly? Like I guess. I guess he died for me. The least I could do is throw something in the offering. You know, it's, it's sort of, I got to do this. Are there any of us who give or serve in hopes that the people around us will notice and say, wow, look what they did or look what they gave. Isn't that awesome? I, I want to be like them. Or do we give to God because we love him with all of our heart? We're so thankful for the relationship we have with him. We give to him out of a full heart that says, wow, God, I love you. I trust you. This is all yours anyway. I want you to have this. Jesus, before we get to Acts, you guys know he, uh, he talked a lot about giving. Matthew 6, 3 and 4. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. And here's the motive, to be seen by them. Not wrong to do it in front of others. It's if you're doing it to be seen by them, that's a problem. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. To be honored by others, there's that motive again. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Why do we give to God? Why do we serve God? And I don't think it's that we never share with each other what God's doing in our world and in our lives, but why do we share it? Why do we share it? And that's why this message tonight, giving well means getting real. And what I mean by that is when we give, God cares more about the inward reality of our hearts than he does about the, the what we give and the how much we give. Okay, God cares more about what's going on in our heart than he does about the actual what and the, and the how much. And we're going to see two examples of this in the early church. One, really good, and one, really bad. Exhibit A, really awesome. Exhibit B, not so great. But before we get to those two examples, we got a little background to catch up on. Acts chapter 4 and we're going to start at verse 32. You guys will remember right before this, Peter and John healed the dude at the temple that couldn't walk. He was crippled. And the religious leaders told him to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. They jailed him, let him out, sent him back. And the early believers began to pray, God, in light of this, fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to speak your word boldly. And it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The room they were meeting in was shaken and they went out and spoke the word of God boldly. 
That's a prayer God loves to answer. You ask him to fill, fill you with the Spirit and speak his word boldly, he doesn't have to think a lot about it. Like, gee, should I do that? He's like, yeah, here you go. And here's what that filling of the Spirit looked like some more in the early church. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and 33. All the believers were one in heart and mind. That's a mouthful. These early believers and their love for Jesus and their love for their other believers, they were united. It doesn't mean they were all the same. It doesn't mean they all thought the same, acted the same, had the same gifts. But in their overall purpose in life of loving him and loving his people, they were on the same page. They felt the same in their heart and they thought the same about Jesus. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. And this doesn't mean they didn't each have their own homes and, and stuff. It just means that, yeah, while these are my personal possessions, they're not necessarily private. If I have a brother or sister that needs this, I'm going to let them, let them use it, borrow it, have it. If I see somebody in need, I'm going to help them. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. Obviously, they continued to preach the gospel. Jesus died, rose again for your sins. But what I want to point out was the reason the gospel hit that world so hard and so impactfully wasn't just because those guys spoke powerfully. It wasn't even just because of the miracles. It was because when people looked in, they saw a group of people that loved each other so much, they were willing to actually meet each other's needs. Isn't that what Jesus said? They will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. You guys think that's important when we share the gospel? If we don't have that, if we're a group of selfish people, I heard one preacher explain it this way. Suppose I got a really good banana. And some of you love bananas, some of you hate them. Let's say you love bananas. And let's say I open that banana up and I break it in half. It's outside the peel and I get ready to hand it to you, and that banana looks good. But you know that in the previous 15 minutes, I went to the bathroom and didn't wash my hands. I sneezed in my hand. I coughed in my hand. (laughs) Give it to Lori. Give it to my wife. Are you going to want that banana no matter how good it looks? Why? Because the the messenger is contaminated. They they look at the messenger and say, I don't want anything to do. We got to have a life that backs up the, the message of our Savior. Go on, please. This is a crazy verse. There were no needy persons among them. Wow, what if that could be said about our church and the church around the world? There, there's not one needy person in our church. For from time to time, that means this didn't happen all the time, this latter part. This was exceptional, and I believe it was as the Spirit led. You guys know how sometimes the Spirit leads you to go down to the bank and take out 100 bucks and give it to somebody, and then you give it to them, and, and they're like, oh my goodness, I was $100 short on my water bill. How, how'd you know? And you're like, I didn't. God did. I believe that's what's going on here, because these people are filled by the Spirit. They're controlled by Him. From time to time, those who own lands or houses, sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. What a generous giving community. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that we we bring money down to my feet at this church and we spread it out that way. But what I am saying is when we look at the early church, because I'm not an apostle, not even close, 
So don't get confused. Some churches go down a weird path with this and it turns almost cultish. But what I am saying is we need to be characterized by generosity and love for one another. Now with that background, that's an awesome background for the early church. Luke, the author of Acts, is going to give us two examples of what this looked like. Exhibit A, as I said, was really good. And we're going to go to a man named Barnabas. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Very cool. God laid it on his heart, evidently. He sold it. He brought it in with a a pure heart, and he wanted to bless people. Now, I want to talk about a couple things. How many of you guys have heard of Barnabas before? Probably most of us. How many of you knew he had two names? Joseph and Barnabas. What the, what the deal is there is Joseph was kind of like his given name from his parents. Barnabas was a nickname, okay, it, which as it says means son of encouragement. And if you guys ever have any nicknames based on a characteristic of yours that you want to share? Huh? Ragu. Ragu? Ragu? And we know that's because you make amazing pasta, right? When, <laughs> when you eat pasta from a guy named Carmine Barone, you know it's going to be al dente. Mr. Ragu, anybody else got a nickname based on a characteristic? My daughter has one. What is it? I named her Rabbit because when I was pregnant with her, she kicked like a rabbit. Okay, that's another good one. Her daughter kicked like a rabbit when she was pregnant with her, so they nicknamed her Rabbit. Often in the New Testament, when they wanted to nickname someone, they looked at a characteristic. Like for him, it was encouragement. This was an encouraging guy. You remember they did this with John and James? Jesus called them the sons of thunder because they wanted a whole city burned down when they didn't believe in Jesus. And Jesus is like, chill out, dudes. Now you got a new name. This is sons of thunder. All right, Barnabas was the son of encouragement. And I want to point out a couple things that I think are useful about this verse. One is, if any of you struggle with profanity, here's a great new term you can use when you bang your finger with a hammer or kick a wall. Just son of encouragement. I mean, you can... <laughs> You could spare yourselves a lot of trouble with your non-Christian friends. Keep your witness up. So there's one, one uh, practical, very practical application, right? Uh, another one I wanted to ask based on that is if you were to have a nickname like that, son of or daughter of, based on characteristics in your life, what, what might your nickname be? Th- What's that? Daughter of the Lord. I like that. I like that. I thought about guys, like, would your nickname be, you know, from your family? Would it be a son of anger? Or would it be son of peace? For you ladies, with your circle of friends, circle of lady friends, would it be daughter of unity? Or would it be daughter of gossip? And I think it's good for us to think about what, what sort of characteristics do we have that might, might give us a nickname? And I, I think one thing that's important about Barnabas, we're going to see him 25 more times in the book of Acts. We're going to see him five times in the epistles. And we see one example of his encouragement with one very prominent figure. You know who it is? John Mark is one. There's one even a little more prominent. The Apostle Paul. Remember when, and we'll talk about more when we get there, when, when Saul first got saved, a lot of the Christians wanted nothing to do with him because after all, he was killing them and throwing them in jail. So he shows up at your 
house for dinner and you're like, who invited him? Right? Barnabas came alongside him and encouraged him, introduced him to that early church and said, this man is of God. Not a lot of people aspire to be Barnabas, right? You know, if you read the Bible, you say, I want to be like Peter or Paul. Not a lot of people say, I want to be like Barnabas. But imagine if Barnabas hadn't encouraged Paul. If, if Barnabas hadn't come alongside him and helped him be received by the early church the way he was. What, what a powerful ministry the world would have missed out on. We need more encouragers. And I think we all need to ask ourselves, who is it that I can come alongside and encourage and, and build them up in their faith. So there's a great example. He sold a field he owned, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. Done deal, pretty straightforward. Here's exhibit B. We said last week, before Bonnie and Clyde, before Thelma and Louise, there were Ananias and Sapphira, right? These, I'll give you a heads up, these are a couple swindlers in the early church. We're going to read the first part, and at first it sounds pretty similar to what Barnabas did. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Okay, so far we're on the same page with Barnabas. Now, here's where it gets a little squirrely. It says, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, even as it's worded there, it doesn't sound so bad, but as we keep reading, what we're going to find out is they have a scheme they're working on. And the scheme is, let's take half the money in there and keep some of it, but make it look like we brought all the money. You've got to step back and think about human nature a little bit. Why, Why do that? Why go to all that trouble? And it doesn't take us long to think they probably heard what people were saying about Barnabas, right? Did you hear what Barnabas did? He sold a property and brought all the money in. He is so loving. He's so spiritual. And they're like, man, I want to be recognized that way. I want to be seen by these other people in the church as generous. I want to get some of that positive feedback from people. So let's just keep some of the money back. But how many of you guys know that God is not real impressed with outward appearances? All through the Bible. I mean, you just look at some of the stuff Jesus taught. He's like, okay, it's not enough to just... Not murder, which is an outward act. If you're angry with and hate your brother, it's the same deal. This inward part matters. It's not enough just to not have an affair and cheat on your wife. If you, if you lust after another woman, you need, to, you need to deal with that. That inward issue is just as important. Even when it comes to leaders in the church, what's he say? He says, if, it's, if you can't manage your own family well... You shouldn't lead in the church. And that's a verse, I tell you guys, that constantly challenges me. It's got to start at home. Because God cares more about the reality uh, than the appearance of things. Now let's go on. I want to look at Satan's role in this. Verses 3 and 4. Peter said, and he must have got this straight from God. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was discerning. Because Ananias obviously wasn't showing his cards. He wasn't saying they were holding half of it back. But Peter says, Ananias. You can imagine being Ananias and hearing this from Peter. You think you've got this great thing cooked up? How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? 
You can imagine Ananias' heart starting to beat fast a little bit. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, you didn't have to bring it all in. Why this big show? Why are you acting like you gave more than you did? Why, why are you trying to make yourself look better than you really are? Why this hypocrisy? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And I see a couple of things coming in here. Who says filled in a nice heart? Satan. Now, he had just tried a chapter before this to attack that early church from the outside, right? By persecution. Did that work so good for him? <laughs> no. Sometimes he tries that devouring lion approach, and it doesn't work for him. But the New Testament also says sometimes he comes as an angel of light. So he says, hey, if I can't get him from the outside, I'm going to work on him from the inside. And he starts whispering thoughts to Ananias and Sapphira, right? Hey, wouldn't it be nice to have some of that, some of that glory that Barnabas was getting? Wouldn't it be nice to, to get some of that praise from men? Wouldn't that be cool to... Just get that for yourself. And I don't know how many of us are aware of that today. Some of us are afraid to talk about it, but there's a, a real spiritual battle that goes on in our minds. Not every thought in your mind is yours. Some of them are from God, and some of them are from the enemy. And we've got to be aware of that. When Paul says, put on your spiritual armor, he's not talking to unbelievers, he's talking to believers. And I love this song by Thousand Foot Crutch. I don't know if you guys uh, like alternative Christian rock music, but there's a song that sometimes when I'm running in the field behind our neighborhood, there's a line I yell out loud because there's nobody else around. It's a line that they say to Satan. They say, shut it. If you're talking to me, I'm sick and tired of all your lies and what you want me to be. Shut it. If you're talking to me, I'm sick and tired of all your lies and what you want me to be. And in Jesus' name and blood and power, we have authority to say that. But before we know to say that, we've got to know there's sometimes it's him whispering in our mind and not the Holy Spirit. And I started thinking about how, how do we do this today? Like, what are some ways we try to make ourselves look better than we are? Because the issue here is not like that we all need to be perfect. We all fall short. Okay, that's not the real problem here. The issue is they're, they're trying to be deceptive and make it appear to everybody around them that they're better than they really are. It's the, it's the pride, it's the arrogance of that that's the real problem. Started with Satan himself, right? He said, I want to be like God. And that's why he got kicked out of heaven. Then he comes to Adam and Eve and says, if you eat this, you'll be like God's. What's all that? Pride. So that's how he comes at us. You want to get the glory. You want to look better than you really are. So how do we do this? I thought of a couple ways that, that might play out in our lives today. Maybe when you get into your work office, make sure you're the first one there. And when you get there first, you walk past your boss's office and say, Hey, boss, nobody else is here yet. Just want to say good morning. <laughs> and then at the end of the day, you wait till that last person leaves. And as soon as they're gone, you put on your coat and you walk past his office. Hey, see you later, boss. Everybody else is gone. Have a good day. But in between there, you spend six hours on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, what's going on? You're trying to make yourself look more effective as a worker than you really are. Maybe, maybe, I don't know if you ever have this thought when you get emails from people at four in the morning. Like, is it possible that some of these people just 
like get up just to send an email to their boss or something at four in the morning just, just to make it look like they're working around the clock and then they go back to bed. I, I don't know. Would people go that far? Maybe not. Maybe they really work around the clock, but it's like, could it be? Or if you're in college, what if you got that professor? That professor that every class you get there, they're, they're sitting behind their desk grading tests and they say, just read this passage from the book and I'll test you on it. Not a whole lot of effort. But then that one week when they got an inspector in the class, man, you'd think they were Billy Graham up there in front of the, the class teaching and charts and diagrams. And you're like, wait a second, this is not who they really are. They're just putting on a show. Or what about marriage? You, you might say, hey, I'm not, I'm not having an affair in my marriage, so things look pretty good, but, but what, what are you looking at on your computer behind your spouse's back? What, do, what are you doing on Facebook? What are you doing on your phone? Sure, everybody's not seeing an affair, but what's, what's the reality going on up here? Or even church. Even church. Even, even things like, why do I raise my hands in a service? Is it because that's just an overflow of my love for God and, and I do that at home in my own quiet time and I want to show them? Or is it because three people around me are doing it and I'm like, gosh, this is uncomfortable, but man, I don't want to be seen as the unspiritual one, so I better get it, get it up there. Or uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a group, I, I heard one guy describe it this way, where you've got a guy that talks normal and then when he starts praying, it sounds like he swallowed a steeple. You hear all these words you never hear him say any other time. You're like, who's this prayer really for? Is this for God or is this for the people listening in? You know, this, I don't get this. Or do I, as Aaron mentioned, the songs we sing are prayers. Do we really mean the words we sing in those songs? Or are we just going through some sort of routine to fit in with the crowd and appear like we, we mean those things? Why do I give? Why do I tell that story about serving God? These are good questions for us all to, all to wrestle with. So let's go on to verse 5. You wonder, what's the punishment for this? When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Yeah, <laughs> great fear. You can bet, great fear seized all who heard what had happened. That makes sense. Somebody walks in and tells a lie and they die. You can imagine the word spreads and, and there's a good healthy fear of God going on. The young men came forward wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7 says, about three hours later, his wife came in. Now, it doesn't say why she came in, why she came out of the house to, but I'm guessing, I've been married 15 years, I'm guessing it was one of two things. Either she's like, man, dinner's on the table, it's getting cold, I gotta go see what that guy's up to. Or B, gotta make sure he's not messing up this plan. <laughs> right, you guys are married with me? <laughs> Could have been one of those two things. We don't know why she, why she came out. But she didn't know what had happened to her husband. He's already buried in the ground. And that wasn't uncommon in that day. In that climate, burial quickly was important. They didn't have all the luxuries that we have in modern-day funeral homes. So it, was, it sounds unusual to us, but it's not all that unusual. But she doesn't know what happened. She comes in. Peter asks her, tell me. Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? In other words, Ananias said, this is the whole price we got for the land. Is that true? You see, she has a chance here. She has a chance from God to say, no, it's not. But what does she do? Yes, she said, that is the price. Next verse. Verse 9. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit 
of the Lord. To test the spirit of the Lord means I want to take this disobedience as far as I can and see if God won't punish me. Just to keep pushing it. I'm going to go as far as I can with this and just see if he'll leave it alone. And Peter says, how could you agree to do that? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. Can you imagine what's going through her mind? At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now, I don't know if you've ever had one of those conversations where somebody's like, God that does judgment in the Old Testament is, is a totally different God in the New Testament. Take them to this passage. <laughs> this is the same God. Okay, he, He's just as serious about sin today as he was in the Old Testament. Now, I see a couple lessons about marriage in here. We don't know which one of those two cooked up the scheme first. Imagine all the guys in the room think Sapphira did and all the ladies in the room think Ananias did. We're not sure. But they, they talked about it. And, and there's a couple lessons here. One, if Ananias came up with it, Sapphira should have said, no, I will not be a part of this. Because ladies, even though the Bible says the husband is the head of the home, if he tries to lead you into something that dishonors God, you have a responsibility before God to say no. I am not going down that path. Now the other way, if she came up with it, and she said, hey, let's do this and try to get some fame and glory, he should have been the leader that God called him to be and said, no, dear, I understand the desire. I feel that desire too, but that would not be right. But instead, they agreed, and in their agreement, they suffered the same punishment. One other thing that makes it sort of tragically ironic, Ananias' name means gracious Lord, and Sapphira's name means beautiful. I mean, when you think about what they did in light of the, the names they had, it makes it uh, that much more tragic. But you think about where she landed, too. Five times in this passage, it's weird. Feet comes up. I don't know of any passage where feet, is, feet are mentioned more in the Bible. I just was looking through it. And, and the last time, it says she fell down at Peter's feet and died. And I thought, man, they're, 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 there was pride. That was the issue. They wanted to elevate themselves, right, to get glory. Instead, they ended up in the lowest place possible. To be at someone's feet, you think about Jesus doing the job of a servant, washing his disciples' feet. That's a low, low position. That's a humble position. Uh, God says, every knee will bow someday. God opposes the proud. He says he hates pride. So they were going for glory, and they ended up at Peter's feet. There's a lesson in there for us. In, In verse 11, again, this is the second time this is mentioned. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And my guess is there are some in this room saying, God, this is after Jesus came. These people believed in you. Why? It's a, it's a little over the top, you know. Maybe you could have given them a timeout. I don't get why you were so strong on this. And when you look through the Bible, you see something interesting. A lot of times when God's at the beginning of a new chapter of his work, he makes a strong statement like this as an example to everybody after to make sure they don't walk the path. You remember when the Israelites first walked into the promised land? What's the first city they were going after? 
Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Yeah, Jericho. <laughs> you guys asked for it. Nobody answered. <laughs> Jericho and Achan took some stuff that was devoted to God that he wasn't supposed to take. God wasn't just like send him out of the camp for seven days and bring him back in. He's like round him and his whole family up and stone them, kill them. Because he didn't want to jeopardize the blessings he had for that whole country because of disobedience. When they first built the tabernacle, you remember there were designated priests to bring incense in their censers with fire. And Nadab and Abihu decide, hey, we're going to bring some in even though we're not those guys. And it says fire came out from the Lord and destroyed them. He say, no, you don't come to me however you want. You come on my terms and I'm going to let them know that up front so they get the point. Same thing here. The early church is on their mission to tell the world about Jesus. That is why they were there. And God let them know in no uncertain turns up front. If you're going to be messing around going after your glory, lying to make yourselves look better than you are instead of going after my glory and ruining the witness that I left you there to be, there will be punishment and severe punishment at that. You don't mess with my mission. And you think about, why is that so important? Why did he hammer this particular sin of pride and hypocrisy that way? The world doesn't need any more fake people trying to pretend like they're better than everybody else and lying to get there. They can get that wherever they go out there. God wants people, when they look in his church, to see people that put Jesus first and love their, their neighbors above themselves. Because as we said at the beginning, that is a huge part of our witness. And he will not have that witness compromised. Now, we can all be thankful, right, that he doesn't always work this way? Amen? Because is there anybody in this room that's never tried to appear better than they are? I don't think so. I'm thankful God doesn't work this way all the time, but what, what a powerful example. This was an example for us. Life is about his glory, not mine, not yours. And we've got to be a group of people that are able to be real with each other. Imagine if he had let this go unchecked. That word would have started to spread that, wow, Ananias and Sapphira are pretty cool too. And they would have be climbing, you know, becoming leaders in the church. And, wow, all of a sudden everybody gets in this climate that, boy, I'm going to try that too. And pretty soon faking it is a thing to do. And that happens in churches today, doesn't it? Let's hide everything. Let's hide all of our yuck and pretend we're better than we are. But then... We never get to that oneness that, that God wanted us to be in the face of the world. And I thought about what does this posturing look like from God's perspective when we try to make ourselves look bigger than we are? And you know what I thought about? I thought about our, our beta fish at home named Dory. Okay? She's, she, he lives in this, it's a long story why a he got named Dory. He lives in this fishbowl that's about this big, and sometimes I have to get down there and go like this to the, the beta, and you know what he does? He, he gets his, his facial fins out like this and tries to make himself look really huge and, and aggressive, and what am I thinking? Am I scared? Am I impressed? I'm like, dude, you're, you're smaller than my finger, okay? I, I could swallow you. I could swallow 200 of you and still be hungry. All right, that's the one thing I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, all right, 
When God sees us in our earth, which very well may look like a little fishbowl to him in the vastness of his universe, and he sees us puffing out our, our cheek fins, he's got to be shaking his head like, come on, guys. It just doesn't make sense. But then the second thing I thought about was, you know, the only reason Dory is alive is because I want Dory to be alive. I feed Dory every morning. I change Dory's water once a week. And I think you and I need to remember that. The only reason we're alive is because God wants us alive. And that ought to bring a healthy reverence, thankfulness, and humility to our lives as we live down here. As I close, I think the heart issue here, why they did this is something we all wrestle with. It's really an issue of significance. Where do I derive my sense of I'm, I'm worth something from? And we can look all sorts of places. We can look to our work, our family, the people around us. And on my birthday this week, I turned 37, and one, one thing I like to do is uh, Wednesday, I, I was laying on my couch. Carolyn had the boys out, and I like to think back over the previous year and look ahead and just pray a little bit and say, God, I don't know what you got, but thank you for another year. And I had this awesome time for like 15 minutes where, I don't know if you guys have these. They, they don't happen every day for me, but it was so sweet with God. It was just like, Scott, I love you. I was like, God, I love you. I'm thankful for you sending your son. And in that moment, he spoke to me so much about you're, you're valuable, not, not based on how many people come to your church, not based on you being a perfect dad because you're not and a perfect husband because you're not. You're valuable because I loved you enough to send my son to die for you. And that's enough. You're, you're worth everything to me. And it was like you saying, that's where you find your significance, Scott. Everything else is frosting. It's icing on the cake. And it made me think, if that's where we all found our significance, moment by moment, we wouldn't feel this need to lie. We wouldn't feel this need to impress other people, would we? We, we, we could be free to be real. Because we can tell better stories about our work life than what really happens. And we can tell better stories about our home life than what could really happen. But I challenge you to tell a better story than the gospel of Jesus Christ. A better story than that the creator of the universe loved you so much, he sent his only son to take your sin upon himself and die in your place. You cannot tell a better story than that. So if you find your significance in that, all of a sudden the pressure's off to impress people. So as we close, two, two things I want you to think about. One is, and you can close your eyes if you want or just, just talk to God in your mind, however you want to do it. What do I care about more? Do I care more about what God thinks about my reality or what others think about the appearance of my life? Which drives me? What God thinks about my reality or what other people think about the appearance of my life? And the second question, and we can think about these throughout the week this week, what's one area of my life that I've been acting? 
that I've been a hypocrite. I've been trying to impress people, make them think I'm better than I am. Do I find my significance in God or the, what the people around me think? And what's one area of my life I've been acting and asking, God, help me lay that down. Help me find my significance in the truth of the gospel and rest in that and be who I am in that, in Jesus. Help me to stop acting. George MacDonald said, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look like what one is not instead of trying to be what one is not. Lord, we want to be people that are about the reality. We want to rest in the truth of the gospel. And we need your Holy Spirit to help us have a real vibrant spirituality to our lives. We can fake it on our own. We can't do the real thing on our own. Help us to rest in what you've done for us, Lord. I pray if anyone is in here that heard that truth that Jesus died for their sins, that maybe tonight would be the first night they say, that's, that's what I want. I want to find my significance in that. If that's you tonight, it's encourage you in your own words. If you mean it from your heart, it's Jesus. Thank you for coming God in flesh, not just to be a baby in a manger, but to grow up and die on a cross with my sin and rise again. I want to find my significance in that. I trust in that to make me right with God. I'm done with the act. You prayed that tonight. You're, you're accepted by God. Accepted by God. How often do we say that and just pass right on by? Lord, help us to stop acting. God, we need to be real with each other. We struggle, we fall. We need to lean on each other when we fall, not, not hide it. God, help us to give and live from hearts that really love you, love the people around us in the power of your spirit. Pray that the world will look in and want the Jesus that we have. Lord, even as we prepare to give our offerings, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be lined up just like we talked about tonight. Not for show, not out of guilt, not because I have to, but because I love you, God. I love your kingdom. I love your mission. In Jesus' name, amen.